time opening your Bibles to the prophet Obadiah. And as you were doing so, I would ask you to stand that we might show honor to God as we prepare to read his word. We find ourselves still in the prophet Obadiah this morning. And we made it last week through verse 9. So we're going to focus our attention on verses 10 through 14. But, but I'm actually going to begin reading it in verse 1, just so that we can make sure we keep up with the context and the flow of what's happening in the prophet Obadiah. Let us give our attention now to the word of the Lord. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed! Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, her treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath, me, beneath you. You have no understanding." Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On that day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. Not too long ago now, I read a story about Charles Colson, founder of Prison Fellowship. He was conducting a seminar in the Indiana State University, uh, rather the Indiana State Prison. And after he'd finished speaking, one of the volunteers at that particular event, the man lingered. And he lingered so that he could speak with a prisoner who was on death row. This particular prisoner was a man named James Brewer, who had just recently become a Christian. The story goes that there was a plane waiting to take Colson to Indianapolis, where he, in two hours, was slated to have a meeting with the governor. Because of this tight schedule, Colson pressed the volunteer to hurry up. He hollered at the man, we have to go. The volunteer responded, just a minute, please. 
Colson, already feeling agitated, fired back. No, time's up. We've got to go. The volunteer protested once more, this time revealing his identity. Please, please, he said. This is very important. You see, I am Judge Clement. I sentenced this man to die, but now he is born again. He is my brother, and we want a minute to pray together. Colson froze, gripped by the scene that was unfolding before him. Think about it. Here were two men, two men who couldn't be any more different. One was black, one was white. One was powerless, the other powerful. One condemned to die, the other he who sealed his fate. And yet here were these two different men standing side by side, grasping a Bible together and praying. You see, for all that divided them, and very much did divide them, for all that made them different, they were actually brothers. Now, I share that rather warm story with you because it stands in stark contrast with the cold picture that is painted in front of us this morning. To cut to the chase, the triune God has a problem with Edom, and Edom, you will remember, is Jacob's brother. And the problem was this. Edom had done violence to God's people. Edom had done violence to his brother. You see this in verse 10, don't you? Verse 10 is sort of like the headline. It announces the story. So what does the headline of verse 10 say? Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off. Now, over the last couple of weeks, as you know, we've been exploring the prophet Obadiah. And we have seen how God has promised to judge Esau, to judge the Edomites. There's been no doubt about that. But now, this morning, we finally begin to see why. Why will the hammer of God's judgment fall upon Edom? Because, verse 10, the violence done to your brother. In other words, because Edom has treated Israel, his brother, God's people, because Edom has treated them so poorly, God will now bring his heavy hand upon them. Now, if you are wondering at this point how violent this violence was that Edom did to Jacob, the prophet really leaves little to the imagination. Just notice real quick at, at how Jerusalem's plight is spelled out. Jerusalem's wealth was, verse 11, carried off. That is to say, their 401ks evaporated. Their bank accounts defaulted. Their credit cards declined. We're told, middle of verse 11, that foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. Imagine, everything was invaded and overrun. All that the people of God had, had worked for and built and invested in, it had all been destroyed or confiscated. If all that doesn't sound horrific enough, the prophet then employs a series of really just dreadful words that capture Jerusalem's demise. In verse 12, it is described as misfortune, ruin, and distress. Then in verse 13, the prophet says that it was a day of disaster. And then you'll notice in verse 13, three times a day of calamity, calamity, calamity. 
But you have to understand, church, that this whole thing is cast in the most dire of ways. This was hell on earth for the people of God, what, what Obadiah is referring to. And, and what he is referring to occurred in 586 B.C., when Babylon sacked Jerusalem. The entire city was devastated. The people of God, they were deported from the promised land, carried off from what God had said He would give them. The very temple itself, which, which symbolized the presence of God, it had been destroyed. You see, that's the dark day that the prophet is speaking about. This is the dark day of judgment that fell upon the people of God. But here's the point not to be missed. While Babylon was the chief actor in all of this, they were not alone. Edom, too, had her hand in this. And that's what makes all of this so evil, so just utterly reprehensible from the prophet's perspective. Edom was Jacob's brother. They shared a crib together. And Edom treated Jacob this way. Now I remind you of that for this reason. When the triune God begins to poke his finger and, and put it in the chest of Edom for her great sin, he does so by specifically calling out, again, this brotherly relationship that Jacob and Esau enjoyed. You see this in verse 10, right? Because of the violence done to your brother, Jacob. Or in verse 12, do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. You see, I, th I think we recognize that violence done to any image bearer of God is evil. But it takes it to a whole new level when you do violence against your own family, which is what Edom has done here. So then what's the punishment that Edom will endure? When the gavel drops, what awaits them? Well, hear this. They will be covered and they will be cut off. Verse 10 again. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall what? Cover you and you shall be cut off forever. Like when a high schooler is pantsed in the locker room and immediately covered in shame, and, and just seeks to hide himself. So Edom will be covered in shame. Her head will be hung low. She will be utterly humiliated. But that's not all. On top of being covered, she will be cut off. You see the language there at the end of verse 10, don't you? It is ruthlessly strong. This nation, this people group, we are told, they will be exterminated for their great sin. The language says they will be cut off forever. I've asked you before, I'll ask you again. Have you ever met an Edomite? And the answer, of course, is no. Well, if verse 10 acts as the headline, then what follows in verses 11 through 14 is the article. It gives us the details. And one of the details that can't be missed is that Edom was not simply a passive observer in Jerusalem's destruction. I recognize that you might sort of get that impression, at least initially. Even this morning, I've already mentioned that it was Babylon who sacked God's people in 586. And that's true. Babylon had the big stick at the time. 
But don't make the mistake of thinking that Edom just sort of sat there with her arms crossed and did nothing. She too got her hands dirty. Verses 13 and 14 reveal this. Speaking against Edom, God says through his prophet, end of verse 13, Do not enter the gate of my people. Do not loot his wealth. Verse 14, do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. You see, Edom too was sinning. To put it into something of a, of a modern context, forgive me if you will, but, but it was as if Babylon was doing a drive-by on Israel. And while Babylon was driving the car, and while Babylon had their guns pointed out the window and they were shooting, well, Edom was in the back seat. And she too was unloading her rounds upon Jerusalem. This is also brought out there in verse 11. We read, On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. And in verse 11 there, the strangers and foreigners, that refers to Babylon. When that was happening, end of verse 11, you were like one of them. That is, you, you, Edom, you were acting like Babylon, our enemy. When you should have been acting like Edom, our brother. Now the utter heinousness of Edom's sin, his unbrotherliness, it is further revealed in a series of prohibitions, eight to be precise. And these eight prohibitions, they are more than apparent in Hebrew, and the ESV at least has done a really good job in translating this section so that we can see them in English. They do this by translating the beginning of all eight of these prohibitions in the exact same way. They use two words, do not, do not. So you see there at the beginning of verse 12, but do not. And then you see that same phrase repeated another seven times throughout this section, don't you? Do not, do not, do not, do not. Now real quick, these eight prohibitions, they are obviously aimed at Edom. And when you and I read it, we might be tempted to sort of cast them in the future. It's sort of like, hey, do not do this. But the truth is, they have already done all of this, right? These do-nots of verses 12, 13, and 14, they flesh out the violence of verse 10. So with these prohibitions, prohibitions Edom is looking in the rearview mirror. It's already happened. And because of that, Edom is destined to doom. Now, like I said, there are eight, but you could just as easily combine a couple of them. So really, there are three main prohibitions here. Let me give them to you. Do not boast, do not trespass, and do not help. That's the warning. Do not boast, do not trespass, and do not help. And so we'll look at each one pretty briefly. And as we're going through, I'm going to try my best to make some connections for us as a congregation. When it comes to boasting, I'm getting that from verse 12 and then a line down in verse 13. So verse 12 says, But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of his calamity. 
I'm sorry, in the day of his distress, excuse me. And then in the middle of verse 13, do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. So in those verses, you've got gloat, rejoice, boast, gloat, right? Do, 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 do you see the attitude here? Do you see the boasting? Do you see the arrogance? Do you see the pride? And what we're supposed to see is that God loathes that whole thing. This is ugly to him. It is a stench in his very nostrils. And the reason for that is because boasting springs forth from a heart of pride, and pride is by definition hostile to the gospel. As the Puritan Andrew Jones put it, pride sets men in opposition against God. He says it this way, In other sins, men run away from God, but pride is coming against God. And Christians get like this all the time, don't we? We start wagging our fingers. We look down our noses at others. Our our chests get all puffed out. Before long, we start thinking that we're somebody special, like we actually bring something to the table. We shake our heads in disdain and arrogance at our unbelieving neighbors. And like the Pharisee of old, we thank God that we are not like other men, like those extortioners and adulterers and tax collectors. Or perhaps we go home after church and we rail on other Christians because they don't have it quite figured out like we do. They haven't actually attained to the level of spirituality that you or I have. And Christian, what you need to understand is that, again, that is all ugly. It's all the spirit of Edom. It's not the spirit of Christ. Do you understand why pride is so ugly? Why it's so hostile to the gospel? It's because pride castrates grace. Pride has the audacity to raise its voice and say, Christ died for me because I was worth dying for. Pride says, if you really want to be a better Christian, then you need to like do and think and act and live and look and feel like I do. Pride touts, I will get a better mansion up there because I got it all figured out down here. See, at the end of the day, pride boasts in self rather than in the Savior. Let me remind you, Christian, that growing in grace, growing in the gospel, it breeds humility and it destroys haughtiness. Growth in grace is something that is self-effacing and Savior-exalting. We live in a world of spiritual selfies. We live in a world of, of spiritual flexing where it's all about us. But the fact of the matter is, that attitude robs Christ of his rightful glory. Which is why scripture tells us that God gives grace to the humble. But he resists, he opposes, he stiff arms the proud. And what we see throughout Obadiah is that Edom was proud. And so God them. So our exhortation this morning is, let us not follow in the footsteps of Edom. Then there is the warning 
do not trespass. I'm getting that from the beginning of verse 13 and then the end of verse 13. Beginning of verse 13, do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. And then the end of verse 13, do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. So what is God saying? He's saying, Edom, this is your brother. Don't trespass. Don't take advantage of him. Don't pillage. Now, Christian, I don't imagine that any of you are in danger of claiming squatters' rights. I hope not. So perhaps at first glance, we might be tempted to think, well, well, Christ has nothing here for us. Perhaps. But I think there's some bigger principles that are at play. For example, thinking in light of verse 13 and that prohibition against looting, well, we ought to strive to not be a drain on our family, milking them for all they are worth. Likewise, we ought to seek to drive a dagger through our heart of greed and covetousness, which is no doubt what fueled Edom to ransack Jerusalem. And at the same time, we ought to renounce any thought, any thought at all of taking advantage of those who are around us, which of course is exactly what Edom did. All of this is sinful, church. Furthermore, as Christians, we should remember that rather than, returning to the language of verse 13, rather than entering the gates of our enemies, and and rather than looting wealth, and, and rather than trespassing, instead, as Christians, we should seek to actually open our own gates. That is to say, we are called by Christ to extend love and hospitality. 1 Peter 4, verses 8 and 9 instructs us this way. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And then the apostle tells us, show hospitality to one another. And then he kind of qualifies it, without grumbling. And then Paul adds in Romans 12, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And so what I want to say is, that, is, is, is this. We do this stuff, Christian, right? We, we love our brothers and sisters in the faith. We open our homes. We open our refrigerators. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. And, and here's the deal. We do all of this, or at least we're supposed to do all of this, not out of a sense of guilt, but out of gratitude. Not out of duty, but out of delight. We are to do this because of the sheer grace of Christ In him, all of our sins have been forgiven, and and we have been ushered into God's family. So here's, here's the logic of how this works in the scriptures. Christ loves us, and he forgives us. So in turn, we are to love one another and forgive one another, right? Christ shed his blood. He he took away all the wrath of God that was owed me for my sin. He bought me a seat at the table. Well, I am in turn to extend grace and love and invite you to my table. I guess what I want you to see here is that there is a gospel rhythm to all of this. Just as Edom was supposed to love his brother, well, so we are supposed to love one another. And love, remember, 
this love that we have for one another, it is to be the overflow of God's love, which has been Romans 5, 5, poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's press on now to the to the third and final warning. And, and this one, I think, is no doubt the most horrendous, at least in the context. And that is, do not help. Do not help. This idea is, is, is found in verse 14. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Do, do you see the picture that's unfolding here? It's the picture of Edom ratting out his brother. It's Edom with his flashlight shining a light on the people of God and hollering at Babylon, here they are, I've got them, come quick before they get away. Is that not sick? Is that not evil? Is that not a vengeful spirit? It's one that ought to have no place in the life of the Christian. We can be really bad at this sometimes. We, we can be those who hold grudges. We can be those who plot revenge. We can be those who drive home from church and have a 10-minute imaginary conversation with a person who's not there and win the argument like every single time. We're not to be those who sit and stew over this stuff. We're not to be those, how do I get even? How do I one-up? Oh, again, we've been forgiven much, so we are to forgive much. Again, if Christ really did die on the cross and take away your sin and absorb the very wrath of God that was reserved for you, well, if that's true, how on earth can we hold sin over other people's heads and wait to unleash our wrath upon them? Remember what Paul told the Roman Christians about this? He said, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Don't make the mistake of thinking that you're judge and juror. You're not. God is. That is His department. And so we are to leave that up. We are to leave that in His hands. It is up to Him. Paul continues in that same section in Romans chapter 12. He says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. And so the calling, of course, and you see this throughout Romans chapter 12, is that we are not to be a people who return evil for evil, but we are to return evil with good. And, and Christian, in the context of Romans 12, if that is true in terms of how we are to relate to our enemies, then how much more true is it in how we are to relate to one another, our brothers and sisters, those whom we love? You see, the tragic part about all of this, at least in Obadiah, in that context, is that Edom helped in his brother's ruin. But we are supposed to be those who help our brothers and sisters in their redemption. We're supposed to be an encouragement. We're supposed to bear with one another. We're supposed to love one another. We're supposed to forgive one another. Well, in, in light of these prohibitions, and, and not just the prohibitions, but really all we've seen from God's prophet this morning, uh, allow me to conclude with four truths. 
Four truths that we need to have our feet firmly planted on, especially as we seek to walk with Christ in these days. First, Obadiah teaches us that as Christians, we ought to expect suffering, persecution, and even betrayal. In other words, when the Edoms of the world show their teeth, as Christians, we should not be surprised. I think this is, a, uh, this is something that maybe, some, maybe most of us, dare I say all of us, go through. As, as new Christians, we sort of mistakenly think that, that if we would just repent of our sins, if we would just trust in Christ, then like everything will automatically be good tomorrow. Sort of like, well, there were, I had all these problems. There was all this drama before, but suddenly Jesus is like overnight going to fix it all and it's all going to go away. Am I the only one who thought that? That is so wrong. That is absolutely wrong. The truth is, and I'm sorry that I have to be the one to tell you this if you're first hearing it. The truth is, the more that you stand for Christ, and the more that you seek to walk faithfully with Him, the more friction that you're going to have in this world. I'm sorry, it doesn't get easier, it gets harder. And if you've been following Christ for any length of time, you know exactly what I mean. And as our society continues to plunge headlong further and further into secularism and paganism, we should only expect that sort of hostility to increase. It's not like it was in some of your days where being a Christian was actually thought of, thought of as a virtue. In our current day and age, if you're like an actual Christian and you do what God's word says, then others might actually look at you with more than a little suspicion. But before we throw our hands up, remember this is what our Lord told us. He said to us, remember, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of a green pasture. No, in the midst of wolves. And we all know what wolves do with sheep, right? Wolves don't buy sheep dinner. Wolves eat sheep for dinner. And our Lord continues in that same chapter. That's from Matthew chapter 10. He tells us, listen to these words. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents. A person's enemies, Christ says, will be those of his own household. And you know what? Israel understood that. They lived it as soon as Edom came knocking at the front door. But here's the point, church. Don't think for a moment that we are immune to that. Rather shockingly, Paul warned the Ephesian elders of fierce wolves who would not spare the flock. But then he adds, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking, will arise men speaking twisted things. I, I, I think as Christians, we, we tend to sort of just assume that our only threat, the, the only place where danger comes is like out in the world. And there's truth to that. But you know what the overwhelming testimony of the New Testament is? It's not so much the world that you've got to worry about. It's so-called brothers. It's, in, in, it's even so-called pastors. Paul is talking to the Ephesians. He's talking to the pastors of the church, saying, from you guys, from you pastors, wolves are going to arise. 
Paul also tells the Philippians that not only is faith a gift given to Christians, but so is, strangely enough, suffering. He says in Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you, it has been gifted to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, that's great, but also suffer for his sake. So suffering, Scripture tells us, is a gift from God. And that's something that Peter picks up on. He admonishes us, remember, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. It's as if Peter's saying, Christian, this isn't written in the fine print. This isn't tucked away down in some footnote somewhere. Christian, you ought not to be surprised at this stuff. Rather, you should expect it. You should expect suffering. You should expect persecution. You should expect betrayal. Demas's will turn away from Paul's. Judas's will betray Christ's. Edomites will do violence to Jacob. And Christian, the unbelieving world and even professing Christians will thrash you. That is the consistent picture of Scripture. And so don't think for a moment that we are immune to or exempt from any of this stuff. The truth is, this is our lot. This is our inheritance in this age. But eventually, by God's grace, it will give way to a much more glorious inheritance in the age to come. Think of our Lord. Think of the pattern that we see with Him. The crown of thorns precedes the crown of glory. And the same is true for you and I. Second, Obadiah teaches us that as Christians... We should rest in God's sovereignty, Christ's love, and the Spirit's presence. In the face of Babylon and Edom and wicked evil, we as Christians have a soft pillow and a warm blanket. And that is because our Father rules this world. Christ loves us and has given himself up for us. And the Spirit has promised to forever dwell within us, regardless of who's knocking at the door. I, I wonder if you happen to remember what the Lord said to Moses back in the book of Exodus before all the fireworks started. In Exodus chapter 3, this is what God said. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. So God saw and God heard and God knew. Why is that important, you ask? Well, sometimes when we are really going through it, we sort of feel alone, don't we? We maybe give in to the temptation that God has fallen asleep at the wheel or that, that he is AWOL or something like that. We're prone to assume that we are the only person on planet Earth who is experiencing this particular thing. And, and even if we, we are the only person, it's not like anybody cares anyway. 
And I want to ask you, imagine how the people of God felt in Obadiah's day when they were pummeled by Babylon and by their very own brother, Edom. Where are we supposed to turn in those sorts of times? Only to God. Again, our Father rules this world and literally everything and everyone in it. The Lord Jesus is, in these very moments, enthroned in heaven. And you know what? He's enthroned in heaven with holes in his hands and his feet, forever proving his love to you. And the Holy Spirit has made it his mission to be with you no matter what. You know what that means, Christian? It means that we can really and truly rest in God. It means that even when our faith is weak, God is strong. Even when our enemies are snarling, God has them on a leash. It means, to quote the London Baptist Confession of Faith, whatever happens to any of God's elect happens by God's appointment for His glory and for their good. Christian, in light of all this, I would invite you with fresh ears to hear this wonderful promise that comes from Isaiah 43. Listen to this promise. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Now, very quickly, don't miss the promise. The promise isn't that you'll never go through deep waters or hot flames. You will. Some of you have. Some of you are right now. That's not the promise. The promise isn't escapism. The promise is that you will not swim in sweat alone. The promise is whatever it is, it is not pointless. It is not meaningless. Fledging Christian, you can actually trust God. No matter who's at the gate, you can rest in God. No matter what you face, your Father is sovereign. Christ loves you, and the Spirit is with you. And nothing, nothing will ever change any of that. Third now, Obadiah teaches us that as Christians, we ought to be confident that nothing escapes our Father's attention. Nothing. Now, granted, at first glance, that might appear to be about as comfortable as a hug from a porcupine, right? You, you, you mean to tell me, Pastor, that God sees everything? My heart? My motives? How's that good news? Well, hear me out. If you are trusting in the Savior, then you are, in these very moments, robed in His righteousness. You have to understand, this is what makes the news good news. This is what makes the gospel good news. It is that the Son of God became man for us. And He lived a life of utter perfection before the law of God. And please hear this. It is that life, that life of sinless perfection, that life of utter and complete righteousness before the law of God that is credited to each and every one of you by grace alone through faith alone. That's the good news. The good news isn't, okay, you believe in Jesus, now get to work. 
The good, news you, the good news is you believe in Jesus, now rest in him. The punchline? When the Father looks at you, he sees Christ. He sees utter and complete perfection. He doesn't look at you, brother or sister. He doesn't look at you and see you in and of yourself. He doesn't see you as this wretched, miserable sinner, which you are. He sees you donned in the garments of gospel grace. You know what else he sees? He sees your suffering. He sees your suffering. He sees how the wicked triumph. He's aware of the injustice that abounds. He witnesses his son's bride being mocked and disgraced. Nothing escapes him. It's all laid bare before the all-seeing eye of God. And that's where the comfort lies, right? Proverbs 15.3 announces, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Christian, your Father sees it all. Let me put it this way. If the very hairs of your head are all numbered, and they are, then do you really think that God can somehow forget about you? About your hardships? About your struggles? Not a chance. Listen once more to the word of God from the lips of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 49, 15 asks, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? No, of course not. You mothers understand this. Even so, the prophet's willing to play the game. And so he continues now, speaking forth the very word of God. He says, even these may forget. Okay, maybe one in a gazillion will forget. Yet, I will not forget you, God says. And in the very next verse, behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. Christian, we can be confident. Not confident in self, not confident in who you are, not confident in what you have done or what you have not done, but confident in this, that nothing escapes our Father's attention. He sees you. He sees you undergoing your cancer treatment. He sees you struggling in that marriage. He sees you scraping together as much as you can just to try to put food on the table. He sees you in all of your anxiety and your trouble and your doubting and your pain. He sees it. Rest assured, nothing escapes him. And fourth and finally, Obadiah teaches us that as Christians, we can be assured that God will avenge us. We'll look at this more next week, but it's more than hinted at there in verse 10, isn't it? We read, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, that is, shall cover Edom, and you shall be cut off forever. Don't miss the connection. Why will Edom be covered in shame, and why will Edom be cut off? Answer, because of the violence Edom did to God's people. Or, to cut to the chase, attacking God's people brings God's judgment. We see this reality throughout Scripture. It's not like it's confined just to the prophet Obadiah. For example, in 2 Thessalonians 1.6, Paul says, Indeed, 
God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So, so Scripture is telling us that those who afflict the church, God will repay them with affliction. Or think of the souls of our martyred brothers and sisters who are gathered under the altar in heaven. They cry out, even in these moments, Revelation 6, 10, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The response? Just a little longer. It's coming. Our elder brother has our back. Christ will avenge us. All the wrongs will be righted. And if you sit here this morning and you scratch your head and you wonder, well, why on earth would Christ avenge us? At least one answer is because Christ takes it personally. In other words, when his people are mistreated, it is as if Christ himself is mistreated. Perhaps the most common place that we find this in Scripture is the situation of Paul's conversion there on the Damascus Road. Remember what Christ says to him when he confronts him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not, why are you persecuting the Christians? Not, why are you persecuting the, this pesky church? Why are you persecuting me? You see, when the sheep suffer, the shepherd takes it personally. I think that's actually one of those things that we don't often think about when we reflect upon the last day. When Christ returns, it is not only a day of deliverance for us. It is at the same time a day of damnation for those who have refused to bow the knee to King Jesus. It is a day of utter damnation for those opponents and enemies of the church. So that on that day, while it is true that the sheep will enter into glory... It is also true that the wolves and the goats will enter into hell. Christ will avenge us. And this is comfort if you are struggling. Let's pray together this morning. Our gracious Father in heaven, we pray that your spirit would see fit to work through the proclamation of your word this morning. We are a people who struggle. We are a people who doubt. We are a people who are angry. We are a people who don't understand. We shake our fists. We get mad at you. We pray that you would calm our anxious souls this morning. We pray that your word would do good for us. We pray that your spirit would make Christ more real in our lives. We pray that you would cause love to overflow in our hearts, not just for you, but for one another. And we pray that as we prepare to come to the table this morning, that you would ready our hearts to receive from the hand of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.